You are listening to the sermon series, Judges, Thrones of the Heart, from Hicksville Cornerstone Church in Hicksville, Ohio. To find out more about our church, visit hixcc.org. Today's sermon title is Virtue's Colors. We're going to ask a question. Have you ever, in order to get your child to eat dinner, told your children that it was something else in order for them to like it? Example, I had one child where whatever meal we fed her, it was chicken. We'd have pork chops for dinner. No, 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 no. Chicken chops. Honey baked ham? Nope. Honey chicken. And then my favorite, fish. Nope. They chicken of the sea. Burgers? That's chicken too. Everything is chicken. Now just cover it up in ketchup like you do every other one of your meals and eat it. Okay? You get the point. Maybe some of you have even lived that point. My child believes at the core of their being that they are eating chicken. Because if we told her that she was eating something different, she would refuse to eat it because it is not what she likes, even though she has eaten this meal countless times under the guise of another name. She's had them over and over again. Now that's a funny story because it's chicken and she was three, right? Here's the analogy. Our enemy, Satan, does the exact same thing. If sin is chicken, he takes sin and he gives it a different name. Many times, if not the majority of the time, when we engage in sin, we don't actually call it evil. We actually might think that we're doing a good. We justify sin all the time by calling it what it is not. And no matter what society has ever existed, many times they will call sin a virtue. For the majority of the world, think about it, for the majority of the time, slavery was not just seen as a necessity, but it was seen as a virtue. To have an abundance of obedient slaves was seen as a good thing in almost all cultures. And in some places and times, it was actually better than the alternative. But that doesn't make slavery good, right? You can call a fish whatever you want. But if it walks on land and it has feathers, it's not a fish. Even if you cover it in ketchup and believe it with every fiber of your being. Likewise with sin. We can call it whatever we want. You can smother it in ketchup. Satan would actually have you call it whatever you want. You do you, 
You determine your truth, YOLO. But that does not have an effect on God's reality. And I hate to break it to you. His reality is the only one that matters, no matter how often we try to hijack it. This is a summation of the life of the next judge we're going to be covering, a guy named Samson, really buff, strong, long flowing hair. You might have seen him on the cover of a romance novel. The flaws of the people of God are summarized in his life. He reflects mankind from Eden to the New Jerusalem. And yet, even in the tragedy of his life, we see wonderful hints of the perfect judge to come. Let's look at the minor prophets leading up to him first. Judges 12, 8 through 15. After him, Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters he gave in marriage outside his clan. And 30 daughters he brought in from outside, of his, outside for his sons. And he judged Israel seven years. Then Ibzan died and was buried at Bethlehem. After him, Elon, the Zebulonite, judged Israel. And he judged Israel ten years. Then Elon, the Zebulonite, died and was buried at Ajilon in the land of Zebulun. After him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pirathonite, that took me so long to practice this week, just so you know, judged Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys, and he judged Israel eight years. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Parathonite, died and was buried at Parathon in the land of Ephraim in the hill country of the Amalekites. So what do the miners do? These minor judges, as they're referred to by theologians, the minor judges point to the majors. How so? These are all messed up people. Remember how we talked about the 11th commandment last week? Remember how over and over again it seems that Israel's judges look a lot more like the people of the land instead of God's chosen people? Yep, same in this section of scripture. The judges look less and less like the people of Yahweh and more and more like the people of the nations. But God doesn't abandon them. Don't miss this. God does not abandon his people. He is still with them in the midst of their sin and rebellion. Let's just look at them again. Ibzan, 30 sons, 30 daughters. For those that are wondering, I think it's clear from the text of Scripture that he had more than one wife. Okay? We good? He probably had wives and concubines like the nations. That's what the nations of the world did. And then he used those children to gain political power by marrying them to essentially build power and allies within the region. Elon, he judges Israel for 10 years. We don't know anything else about him. That's all we know. 10 years, he was a judge. Abdon, Abdon beats Ibzan in their version of rock, paper, scissors. 40 sons and 30 wives. Again, same problem as Ibzan. Clearly more than one wife, okay? Wives and concubines. And what does he do? He gives all his children donkeys. Really interesting birthday present, right? Probably not on our list from our children um, to get donkeys. But in that culture, 
the donkey was seen as the steed of royalty. So Abdon's not living like a judge. He's living like a king. And here are all my royal princes and princesses. He's making the nations treat him not like a judge. I want you to notice this about these three last minor judges. None of them are recorded as having saved Israel. None of them are, having, are recorded as having saved Israel. Just the title. Nothing to earn, but in their eyes, they're judges. And this leads us to the final cycle of judges, the life of Samson. It's one of the longer stories, so we're probably going to camp here through Easter. So please stand for the reading of the Word of God. We're going to be in Judges 13, 1 today. That's how far I got. I apologize. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave him into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Bow your heads with me. Father God, we ask that you be with us today. We ask that you would open our eyes to see sin as sin and to see Yahweh as Savior God. Your son's name I pray. Amen. So we have to begin by asking the question, the eyes of who? The eyes of who? This concept, if you haven't paid attention so far, is the melodic line that is run through all of Judges. That's why I feel like we need to hit it again. We actually preached a similar sermon at the very beginning, but because it's the through line and because we've come such a far away in Judges, I feel like we should visit the melody one more time. The beginning of the section takes us right back to the heart of mankind, which is this. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Which is a repeat from where we've already been. Judges 2.11, 3.7, 4.1, and 10.6 all have the same concept. Notice, however, whose eyes and who is the direct object of the sentence. The eyes are clearly of the Lord. And it is the Lord that determines what is evil, what is wrong, what is sin. And it is Israel who is the direct object. It is they who are committing sin, committing evil. Why the focus on Israel, though? Why? Why not the people of the land? Why doesn't he bring them up? You could argue that if the people of the land were not there, Israel would not be engaging in their religious practices. I think that's a valid argument. Israel, if you remember from earlier on in the story, Exodus and Genesis, has been set apart by God. Now, God desires all people to come to him. We see that even as people join the nation of Israel throughout Genesis and Exodus. And for those that do come to Yahweh God, he has given them a way to live free. How do we do that? The way to live free is to see the world through God's eyes. The way to live free is to see the world through God's eyes. However, we are like the people in Judges. While Judges 13.1 is the last time the phrase is used, another similar phrase is used to close the book twice. Let's look at that one. Judges 17.6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. 
Notice who eyes. Notice whose eyes again. Notice the direct object. Suddenly, the eyes in the text are our own. And we're looking at ourselves to determine what is right and wrong. We've seen this throughout the book of Judges the whole time, especially the last judge that we covered, Jephthah. He's the guy who sacrifices his daughter and no one bats an eye. He burns up his daughter on an altar and everyone's okay with it. Just so you know, if you try to do that here, you're going to have a problem with me. Okay? We don't do that. God calls us not to do that. You see, for Jephthah, it was perfectly acceptable in his own eyes. But it was not acceptable in God's. The minor judges, in their eyes, it was perfectly acceptable to make marriage alliances with the people of the land to secure power. It was perfectly acceptable, but not in God's. In their eyes, it was perfectly virtuous to act like all the kings of the land and buy a bunch of donkeys and let their kids run or ride around on it but not God's eyes. In the eyes of God, this is wicked. And in the eyes of mankind, it's what they're supposed to do. This is true. The majority of the sin we commit is not viewed as wicked, but it is painted as virtuous. The majority of the sin that we commit is not viewed as wicked, but is painted as virtuous. Tim Keller says this in regards to the eyes of the Lord as contrasted to our own eyes. This is what he says. Sin does not ultimately consist of violating our conscience or violating our personal standards or violating the community standards, but rather sin consists of violating God's will for us. God's will for us. This is in stark contrast to modernity, to the world that we live in. This flies in the face of the way that the world sees sin. You see it on every program that you turn on on television. You do you. Your heart determines what is right and wrong. Only you can determine what is good. Follow your heart. Thank you, Disney. Right? All those phrases hang on the people of Israel in the time of Judges too. All those phrases say, my eyes are the only eyes that see 2020 when it comes to morality, when it comes to right living, and when it comes to wisdom. That's what it says. This is the definition in Scripture of foolishness. And it doesn't work by its own standards. Let's just take it on its own standards. The Nazis were convinced they were doing the world a favor by taking the Jews anyone with a disability, anyone that they saw as or deemed as worth less than the general population, moving them to a concentration camp and working them and exterminating them. They saw it as a moral good. The Houthi militants in Africa thought they were doing a virtuous favor to the rest of Africa as they murdered Hundreds of thousands of tutus over the course of 100 days. Putin currently believes he is doing his nation and his people a great favor 
by uniting Ukraine back into its fold that it had a hundred years ago. You turn on Russian state-sponsored media, which you can get through the internet. It's a crazy thing that was invented a while ago. And they will talk over and over again about the moral good that is being, do being done at the battlefront as they sacrifice their soldiers to regain Ukraine. It's a moral good. Look at the horror of the abortion industry. We will destroy the most valuable and vulnerable, not vulnerable among us, if it's deemed to make our lives more comfortable. Or it's better for us financially. We will go as far to call the destruction of a living human a moral good for the sake of convenience in our own eyes. As I was studying this week, I came across a statement by a theologian, Clay Jones. He's an apologist. He wrote a book called Why Does God Allow Evil? And he found this in the midst of his studies. He said this, that every single expert who studies genocide and every single victim that has experienced genocide will say the same thing. The genocide is majorly and mostly committed by regular, ordinary people. Regular, ordinary people commit genocide all the time. It's not just the crazies. It's not just Putin. It's not just whatever other crazy dictator you can think of over the course of your life. Regular, ordinary people. Every genocide expert who studied the topic says this. In a way, and this should terrify us, we are all born Auschwitz-enabled. Under the right circumstances, we're all capable of it. You could say this is how the eyes of the world see naturally. But if this is the case, if our own eyes linked to our own heart are not a good source of the definition of right and wrong, then we have to ask the question, whose eyes are? Whose eyes are a good definition for the source of right and wrong? Is evil only to be defined by the experts, right? who are the ones that approved the sterilizations of unwanted people groups in the early to mid portion of the 20th century. Those were the experts that wiped out generations of people by sterilization because they were deemed worthless. That's in our country, by the way. Is evil to be defined by the majority? You know, the ones that said slavery was a good thing. Scripture alone gives us the only answer, sin, is to defined as what God sees as wicked. Sin is what's defined as what God sees as wicked. Regardless of what we feel, sin is, regardless of what we feel, or what the experts say, or what the culture agrees on at our time in history, sin is defined through God's eyes and not our own. Well, I'm not God, AJ. I know that, right? I know that too. And even Christians disagree on a plethora of issues in regards to human sexuality, human identity, purpose, how to do church, how to read the Bible. How can we know as fallible creatures which one is right? You know, I'm sure you are like me because I've had this conversation with many of you in this church. I just wish God would have given us a list, right? Do these things, don't do these things. 
But ironically, he did give us a list. And even when he did give us a list, we didn't follow it very well. But he gave us something much greater than a list. He gave us himself. He gave us a person. So I'm going to give you four steps that I think will help you see through the Lord's eyes. Four things. First step. Naturally, our eyes are blind and our hearts are deceitful. Naturally, our hearts are blind and our eyes are deceitful. Jeremiah 17.9 speaks to this truth. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? It's the word of God. Luke 8.10. And he said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But to others they are in parables, so that the seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Even the Lord Jesus speaks of those who are blind. When we are dead in our sin, when we are dead in our sin, we will murder our daughters, and our eyes will call it a good thing. For our spirit cannot discern rightly. Our spirit cannot discern rightly. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. We need to understand that sin has blinded us, and that, will, that sin will continue to blind us if we let it. We need to know that that's the starting point. Many of us that engage in sin, all of us that engage in sin, will be blind to it at first. And our hearts will actually crave it. Second step. With that knowledge, we have to cry out to God in humility. We have to cry out to God in humility. If we know that, our own, uh, that on our own we cannot understand right or wrong, if we know that, that we cannot understand right or wrong on our own, then we have to call out to God and ask it. We reflect the song of Psalm 119 when we do. Deal bountiful with your servant, that I may leave and live and keep your word. Open my eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. We are to call out to God. We are to plead that our eyes be like his, that we would not be blinded to our own desires. Think about it. It's the same exact picture of the Garden of Eden, all the way back at the beginning. Why did Eve listen to the serpent? Why did she take the fruit? Genesis 3 tells us. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the what? Eyes. And that tree was able to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She saw it as a moral good for her to indulge in. The serpent convinced her of it, even though God had already told her not to. Third step, understand that the nature of sin is deception. Understand that the nature of sin is deception. That's at the core definition of what sin is. We don't like to admit it. We don't. I'm going to fill you in on a hard truth. I don't like it either. We are very easily deceived. We are very easily deceived. I don't care what side of the political aisle you've been on over the past four years. At some point, you've been wrong. We're all 
easily deceived. Especially by the things we want to be true. The things that we want to be true in life, man, look, I'm from a circus town. I know a circus like, what's the word? Obstacle course when I see it. You know the ones the clowns run through after they get out of their small car? We do the same thing in life if we really want something. If it fits our view of the world, however we see it through our own eyes, we will try to justify it. How sin deceives us, how sin deceives us, is it takes good things and it makes them ultimate things. And when we do that, they become idolatry, they become sin. The line between hard work and making an idol of work is a very thin one. The line between a great romantic relationship and making an idol of a relationship is a very thin one. The line between loving your family and worshiping your children is a very thin one. The, an idol by its very nature is deceitful. Is our heart set upon pleasing the Lord or pleasing our idol? That should be the question that, that, that follows us throughout the day because we will be easily deceived. Step four, evaluate ourselves by reflecting on the Bible. Evaluate ourselves by reflecting on the Bible. Let's just start by doing what Scripture plainly tells us. Let's just start there. There are other nuances that exist throughout the text of Scripture, but just a plain reading of the text of Scripture should be a start. And then we actually have to do what Scripture says. James 1.22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. We want to be hearers and doers. It's actually one of those things during preaching class when I was in seminary. They said, hey, if you want the audience to agree with you at all time, make big general statements. Everyone will go like this. Yes, that's wise, that's good. But when we make specific statements and call people to do what they hear, you'll see a lot less head nods. <laughs> because to do the word is much harder than just hearing the word. Doing the Word is the hard part. You can hear the Word of God all day. We can hear the Word of God and be convicted of coveting our neighbor's stuff, right? You might come in here, I do a coveting sermon. Yeah, I shouldn't cover my neighbor's things. Then you drive home, you see the cool toys in their parking lot, and we pop on Amazon, like immediately. I wonder how much that is. That toy will bring me happiness, right? I'm still working on the hot tub thing, okay? So you know and I know both the coveting aspect of it especially this week. We can hear that we should not be bitter. We can hear that we need to forgive someone. But that is so much easier than going out and actually doing it. Especially if they've hurt us in a profound way. Especially if it'll cost us. Fact is, when we begin to evaluate ourselves in relation to Scripture, we see that we'll rationalize sin all day. They, they deserve my unforgiveness. They deserve my wrath. 
Without my wrath, Lord, they won't know what they're doing is a sin. God, it will be good for me, them if I ignore them and treat them as if they don't exist instead of how I really want to treat them. God, it'd be good if I don't call someone else out on their sin. It'll give you the chance to do it. God, the only way I'm going to reach the drunk is if I indulge a lot with him. God, I know that you say I shouldn't have a romantic relationship with an unbeliever, but Jesus, they have to know you. Why don't I use my romantic relationship to tell them all about you? Reverend Thomas Brooks says this. I found it a profound relation to our text this week. And I hope you walk away thinking about this quote more than anyone else. Satan paints sin with virtue's colors. Satan paints sin with virtue's colors. How do you How do you? Notice how I didn't ask, do you? Because we're all sinners. It's clear we all do this. There are areas of our life where we're blind to sin, where our eyes don't even see it because we think we are the source of light. Yet we worship the God of light that gives light to those who believe. And by his grace, he shows us more and more of the ways that we need to surrender to him. And as we do, as we do these things, our hearts change. Our eyes see sin more clearly and see Jesus more sweetly. Ephesians 1.18, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And notice the promise from the Beatitude. We actually covered this last uh, last fall. Blessed are the pure in heart. What happens when that happens? For they shall see God. This is my prayer for all of us. This is my prayer specifically in my office this week. I regularly ask the Lord for me to see him more clearly. And I pray the same thing for you. I pray that you would see Jesus as Jesus is, as he truly is, and that your life would be changed because you now see through his eyes. Because when you do this, you fall more and more in love with Jesus. It's actually where freedom is. We find more freedom in life as we look through his eyes. It's where shalom is. But so many of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we don't really want the God of the Bible. We don't want the Jesus of the Bible We would prefer a Jesus of our own imagination. A God that we can call Jesus. Why? Because we'd rather have chicken chops. We'd rather have chicken of the sea, honey glazed chicken, than have the real thing. We'd rather have Jesus dress up like someone in our own political party like our favorite preacher. We'd like to dress Jesus in our favorite sin. Big question. How do you know if you're doing that? How do you know if you're doing that? I was struggling with this a good portion of the week, just trying to think, what's a question that can be a heart revealer for us as a congregation? 
this is the this is what I settled on as I was talking with Jesus. When was the last time that Jesus gave you new eyes on an area of your life? When was the last time Jesus gave you new eyes on an area of your life? Not the world. The world tries to put on spectacles on you all the time. Too many times we hear something from Oprah or from Trump or our favorite celebrity, and then we attribute those things to our favorite words, to, to the words of Christ. When was the last time that the word made flesh, the scriptures, challenged you to see in a different way? Challenged your eyes. If you can't remember, that should terrify you. For it probably isn't God holding the paintbrush on the canvas of your life. Turn to God. Open up the word. Be doers, not just hearers. And when doing is hard, and it will be, plead with God for your eyes to be opened. He has much to teach us all if we only humble ourselves before the king. If you're here today and you've never had your eyes opened to the gospel, let me make this clear for you. We are born, the scripture says, in sin. We are, as we've talked about this morning, many of us, Auschwitz enabled. But God doesn't leave us alone with just those eyes. He offers us his very self. He came in the, as Jesus 2,000 years ago to live a sinless life on our behalf, to die an unjust death as a sacrifice for sin, so that his spirit, the Holy Spirit, can live in your life and begin to give you new vision, his vision. If you've never experienced that here to, and you're here today, please talk with me. Please talk to Pastor Jack. Please talk to someone that you might have come with today and have new eyes to see. He desires for you to see him and to see him clearly and for your life to be forever changed. Know that that's a free gift that's available to you. We only need to repent of the way we've seen before and walk in newness of life. Believe the gospel. Bow your heads with me.